This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, discussing digital transformation with Professor Bob Wachter. There's every possibility that the implementation of good technology will be a win win for everyone and in some ways frees us up for the more human aspects of it. We will be left with physicians and patients having a relationship that really takes advantage of the skills and needs of both. Hello, you are very welcome to the Snug Podcast from the Scottish National Users Group for GP Information Technology. I'm Andrew McElhinney, a GP in Central Scotland. Now, I'm very excited about this episode because we are really privileged to welcome a brilliant guest, Professor Bob Wachter, whom we have mentioned on the podcast lots of times before, mainly for his book, The Digital Doctor, but also his 2016 report on the NHS digitalisation, as well as a recent Grand Round UCSF YouTube video on ChatGPT. Now, Bob has provided a bedrock of clear information, reassurance and sanity throughout the past few chaotic years of the COVID-19 pandemic and has amassed 275,000 Twitter followers. Since the Wachter Report was published, we have seen the creation of NHSX in England and also the NHS Digital Academy as the quest continues to inspire clinicians and digital leaders to increase the numbers of chief clinical information officers, people who can help influence and inspire the process of digital development and transformation within healthcare systems, much as Bob has done himself. This week, we met up over Zoom, and I got a chance to get his thoughts on a range of topics, including the morale of doctors in the UK and the US, the digitalization of healthcare, and achieving the right balance between what sorts of care can and should be provided remotely as opposed to face-to-face. We got on to thinking about how a future healthcare system incorporating AI may play out. What will be the effect of this on the need for human interaction and the possibility of automation complacency? It's a great discussion. I really hope you enjoy it. So I'm thrilled today to welcome Professor Bob Wachter. Bob, your your biography would take me too long to read out, but I'll maybe just say that you're the professor and chair of uh, the Department of Medicine at UCSF, the University of California, San Francisco. You've regularly been named one of the most influential physicians in the US and we probably know you best over here for your, your great book called The Digital Doctor and also your report on, on trying to sort out digitalization of the NHS uh, back in 2016. So it's, it's just great to have the opportunity to talk today. Thank you, Andrew. It's a great pleasure to be with you. And I'm a huge fan of the country and, the, uh, and, and, and on a good day, the NHS. And so it's nice to connect. And I'm speaking from Scotland, but I know you're, you're obviously pretty familiar with the English NHS, having, having done your review a few years ago. Just wondering, before we get on to the digital aspects, from your vantage point, what your impression is at the moment, you know, of the NHS as it's just reached its, its 75th birthday? You know, how, how do you think it's doing? At least what I hear, uh, the reports that sort of make it over the, over the pond to me are, and, and when I speak to friends and colleagues, uh, not well. It feels like it's quite cash starved. It feels like the level of conflict 
including with the junior doctors, but others is, is, is high as you kind of might predict when a system is cash starved and people are being overworked and somewhat burned out and, 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 and undercompensated. You know, I'm, I'm an admirer of the NHS and actually in some ways uh, preferentially to Scotland, which I think has made more progress on areas like quality and safety than much of the rest of the NHS. As a way of organizing healthcare, it's always difficult for an American to say anything negative about the NHS because our system is so screwed up that you, I don't think you would want to emulate it. But I, you know, having spent six months in the UK in uh, about 2011, I think, on sabbatical at Imperial, and then spent a lot of time in 2015, 2016 writing my report, I came to believe that the NHS as a way of organizing care is terrific in terms of being able to offer people access to primary care. Uh, and yet it's underfunded and somewhat, as you might expect of a government-led system, somewhat bureaucratic and somewhat calcified, a little hard to make change, a little hard to innovate. And so a mixed bag, I, you know, and I, I do see people suffering. Even the storied access to primary care, uh, which is a feature of the NHS and a huge problem in the U.S., I'm told by friends and over there that that's very hard these days, that it's actually hard to find the primary care doc in your region and and therefore it's leading to stress that didn't used to exist yeah and i think current problems here probably relate to you know massive exhaustion after the pandemic to some extent which can't be underestimated and there is poor morale there's no question people feel both sort of overworked and undervalued and it made me think i mean our healthcare is provided free which is a great thing but that means there's a massive demand for it and I just wonder, do you think morale is maybe better in, in your country? No, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I think whether healthcare is provided free uh, or it's not in our system, I think each one has advantages and disadvantages. Obviously, it sounds great to have it uh, provided free, but it, it certainly does lead to a massive demand. And in some ways, uh, it's hard to deliver on that demand. And so you have issues like waiting lists and things like that. In our system, it's not provided free in many circumstances, but it, what it means is we have this patchwork of insurance programs that are just wildly complicated. Just this morning, actually, I was looking up uh, Medicare options. So I've, I've turned 65 and I'm of the age where my employer provided health insurance is going to stick with me while I'm still working full time. But at some point, if I stop doing that, I'll go into Medicare. And, you know, I do this for a living and it was virtually impossible to understand all of the options and, you know, Medicare Part A and B and D and co-pays and deductibles and all this sort of stuff. So and our, our clinicians are quite burned out, um, also feeling tremendous demand. Uh, we're a little bit ahead of you in digital transformation, which has some good things about it. But when you ask our clinicians, uh, what are the sources of their burnout? One of the main things is their electronic inbox. And what that is, is we've given, you know, most patients now have a digital portal. Uh, by law and regulation, they get complete access to their laboratory studies, their doctor's notes, they read them, and uh, they don't understand what's going on, quite logically. And there's a little button that says, send a message to your doctor. And they're acting perfectly rationally. They click that button and say, what does this mean that my magnesium is low or my EKG is abnormal? And the doctors are not compensated for this work and find that this is what they do every night from seven o'clock at night till 10 o'clock at night after they put the after they have dinner with the kids. And so those sort of things, I, I don't think you have quite that burnout from digitization because the digitization isn't that far along. 
you know, there's just no system that's perfect, but I, I certainly would not tout ours as a system that's figured it all out. No. And it's, it's, it's maybe interesting to think about some of the, the current trends we see in terms of consumerism feeding into healthcare and, and people wanting instant fixes for problems with a sort of Amazon mentality, you know, so, so people don't want to wait maybe for a doctor that knows them if they can see or speak to somebody else quicker. So we lose continuity. And I think health care becomes more transactional and less personal, which is probably not the best quality or the, or the safest. But it sounds like you're seeing similar sorts of things happening. Yeah, maybe, maybe you know, I live in Silicon Valley, so I'm probably seeing it, you know, even earlier than, than the rest of the country. You know, as you say, you know, people's expectations have been set by Amazon. Amazon is making a major play in healthcare. And I suspect, you know, they've all the big digital companies are trying to do this and they've all bumped around for a while and mostly failed because I don't think they fully understand the complexities and uh, and eventually they kind of uh, put their tail between their legs and go back to things that they know are easier and more profitable. But, you know, healthcare is 19% of the gross domestic product in the US. <clears throat> They're not going to go away forever. And it may be that it's not only the expectations for what patients want is set by Amazon, but Amazon becomes an entity that's able to deliver on that. And yeah, I mean, it's it will be more transactional, it'll be more virtual than what we're all used to. Uh, but before dismissing it and saying patients don't want that, they are going to, they value the visit to the doctor and the personal touch. You know, they've certainly gotten used to those sort of transactions to have their taxes done and to plan their travel and to do their banking. And, you know, as soon as I say that, I, you know, I understand that telling a patient they have cancer and walking them through that is a very different thing than helping to plan their, uh, you know, their vacation to Scotland. Uh, but, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how different it is if the care is less expensive, more predictable, less frictionful, uh, and they feel like they're getting what they need. I don't think it's a slam dunk that they will, you know, hearken back to the old system just because, you know, we are in it and we feel like there's something quite magical about the physician-patient interaction. I think you mentioned in, in the book, The Digital Doctor, a bit about how much more rewarding a job can be probably when we get to see people face-to-face. -face. Uh, something that struck me after the pandemic was how doing constant phone calls, remote consultations, really doesn't bring a lot of joy to doctors. Um, and I, I think you mentioned that in Wardrounds you used to speak to the radiologist, uh, but then after radiology went digital, that interaction got lost. So I just wonder, does technology almost inevitably push us away from face-to-face -face connections with people? Well, I think that's an open question here. And I think there's a hope that technology will get rid of a lot of the stuff that adds no value for patients and for clinicians, and in some ways frees us up for the more human aspects of it. And that's a reasonable hypothesis. I, you know, I, I, on, on, on hopeful days, that's what I think will happen. I think that, you know, that patients have to do a whole lot of stuff that adds very, very little value for their health, and it's paperwork, and it's kind of dumb, and more so in the US than in the UK because of all of the insurance uh, shenanigans. Uh, and physicians have to do an enormous amount of stuff, you know, all the time we spend charting and and in the US, uh, you know, getting prior authorizations to get an MRI scan for a patient or, or, or give us a prescribe a certain drug. So you can, on an optimistic day, you can say this technology has the potential to handle a lot of these transactional interactions. And we will be left then 
with physicians and patients having a relationship that really takes advantage of the skills and needs of both. It's, you know, we will talk about the complex issues and walk them through difficult choices. That's on a good day, and I suspect that will happen, but I worry that that will be expensive because you're talking about humans. And so the basic level of care that is offered by a free system like yours or kind of what you get for basic insurance in the US, whether the insurance is provided by your employer or by the government, will be one that is more digital first and more transactional and more resembling your interactions with Amazon. And if you want that personal touch, you can get it, but you have to pay for it. And that wouldn't be dissimilar to, you know, if I want my taxes done uh, by TurboTax, I can get it done for whatever 30 bucks I buy TurboTax. But, you know, my taxes are a little more complicated. I see a real live accountant and I pay a decent amount of money to do that. And for me, it's worth it. For most of my trips, I now plan them all myself. But if I was planning a safari with, you know, 20 people, I'd probably use a travel agent. So it, it, it's not inconceivable that we will get to a place where the basic level of care that's covered by the system is actually quite virtual and maybe not even virtual in the way we think about virtual today, meaning that, you know, you're having a televisit with a patient, virtual in that a lot of the care is being provided by AI and bots, uh, and you can buy up to more personal care. So I think it could go either way, and it probably will go a little bit of both ways, uh, where in many ways it makes the job more satisfying, you get, get, you get rid of a lot of the friction and the bureaucracy, but in some ways, pulls patients, particularly if patients are cost conscious or the system is cost conscious into a system where they're actually, it's pretty hard to see a human being for things that feel very human, like complex medical decision-making. Well, that's a great segue into something I wanted to ask you about. Again, the doctor versus machine diagnosis uh, area. You had described really well in, in, in your book about for clinicians, how we take history from patients in a, in a way that we have to analyze lots of complex information, distill it, and how humans actually can do things that a computer can't do, like picking up and tone of voice, body language, personal knowledge, to predict what the explanation might be. And I hope we never lose that. But, but in the last six months, there's been this new level of, of AI and, and large language models, which can now recognize patterns and, and make probability-based predictions well, but also explain things, certainly a lot better than I can <laughs> a lot of the time. So, so do you think doctors are, are any closer to being replaced? Um, yes, I, I certainly, you know, playing with GPT-4, as I do a lot over the last uh, six months, I don't think you can come away from it anything but wowed by things that I sort of can't believe that it can do. Will that lead to the full-scale replacement of physicians? I think the answer is probably no. Will it lead to the uh, a whole lot of things that we think of as being human tasks being replaced by uh, by AI, and therefore you need fewer physicians, that a whole lot of things are being done by the AI, and then other things are left for physicians, but you don't need quite as many? I think the answer is going to be yes. Uh, you know, I think about the tasks of a primary care doc. Um, it's a little bit hard for me to believe that the basic kind of algorithmic management of hypertension or even asthma cannot be largely replaced, or at least the primary care doc made much more efficient uh, by, uh, by AI-based uh, diagnosis, recommendations, those sort of things. 
you know, the, 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 the usual example is radiology or pathology, things that are about visual pattern recognition. And there was a time five or six years ago in the US where radiology, which had been among our most popular specialties for uh, medical students to go into, all of a sudden tanked because they were reading people saying, you know, radiology is dead and how can you, why are we still training people to be radiologists? And then a few years later was immensely popular again because we've never needed radiologists more than we need them now. And why is that? Because the growth in, in imaging and CT scans and, and the like has gone up faster than the efficiencies that are being delivered by the technology. I think those curves will catch up with each other over time. I still think you will have and need radiologists, but you probably need fewer. And you probably, a radiologist will be not looking first at the film, but looking first at what AI said the film shows and now doing a confirmatory reading or focusing on the areas that AI points out for him or her. And I think that, you know, that leads us to a situation where a, a single radiologist can probably do the work of two or three or five. So I do think it does, it moves us closer to a world where uh, it, it, it partners with physicians, leverages the work of physicians, takes certain work away from physicians. But if there's any lesson of the past 10 years in medical digitalization, it is that it's harder than it looks, that the empire strikes back, at least in the US, the power of my guild of physicians to defend their turf is pretty darn good. Uh, the malpractice system, particularly in the US, will have a say. And so if there's a misread, someone will be sued. And I think that will uh, make it harder to say, you know, AI, you are in charge and you are responsible for the read. And then you're suing Microsoft or OpenAI rather than a doctor. I think all of those things uh, and, and, and really products have to be built and integrated into the work and the workflow in ways that I just think we've learned are, are far harder than it looks, harder than I have AI and it can score well on a test. And so, you know, it just means in the next 10 years, it's going to be very interesting, be a lot of bumping around. But I think I don't see how you can use GPT-4 and not come away with a healthy respect for this thing's pretty darn good, pretty darn smart. And even if I, as the physician, still am the one taking the history because of the nuances of tone of voice and sort of knowing, you know, this question should lead to that question, uh, having that history is going to increasingly be recorded uh, and 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 chronicled by AI. And I don't think it's a far leap to say, you know, the electronic record of the not too distant future will not only produce the note for me, but produce a little strip along the right side of the note that says, based on what I've just heard, the leading five diagnoses are A, B, C, D, and E. And it's probably going to be helpful when it does that. And thinking about an era when particularly younger generations may well trust machines more than humans. I mean, it amuses me when I see five-year-old members of the family being trained that Alexa is better at remembering shopping lists and, and, and what time it is than their parents are. We're going to have a generation of, of, of young people who trust AI for answers to lots of problems, but AI will get them wrong and will have biases and, and probably be funded by big tech companies whose main ambition is to make money. So I wonder, will this take us into lots more misinformation and, and health anxiety? I think those are open questions that, that really beg for thoughtful regulation. You know, physicians are licensed and certified and take board exams. And part of it is about, do you know enough? But part of it is about sort of qualities of professionalism. And if we are leaving to these black boxes, uh, the ability to make a diagnosis and recommend a therapy, 
there has to be, you know, when I hear about biases, often what comes to mind is sort of racial or ethnic biases. But I'm just as worried as your AI was brought to you by, you know, Pfizer. And you don't know that, but that's who's paying for it. And therefore, it's answers to the question about which drug to use for this condition are biased around whoever is, is underneath the hood. That has to become transparent. It has to probably be banned to some extent, but at least be made obvious to the end user sort of who's behind this and, uh, and what is influencing its results. You know, that worries me a lot. It also worries me this, this notion of automation complacency is very real. You know, the, the, the sort of quintessential example is, you know, if I have a self-driving car, quote unquote, you know, the Tesla says it's, even though it says it's an autopilot, it's really not, you know, you should stay awake and be aware because every now and then it will get it wrong and it'll make a turn into a concrete pillar. You know, that of course is ridiculous. The idea that the thing is driving for you successfully 99.9% .9 of the time but you need to stay awake because in 0.1 second, you may need to react <laughs> to prevent a fatal crash. Humans don't operate that way. And so we're going to be in a tricky zone for a, for a while. You know, when the AI, AI is perfect and replaces the humans, then, you know, we just have to figure out what all the humans are going to do with their free time. But for the foreseeable future, it will not be perfect. And the real question is, if it's right 99% of the time, the humans will quite humanly turn their brains off, fall asleep at the switch and not be staying awake to catch the problems, to catch the hallucinations, to catch the biases. I'm very worried about that. And it's something, you know, and yet I have to say, you know, there's pretty good data that the driverless cars are probably safer than the human drivers because they don't text while they're driving. There's very good data that says, you know, airline travel is substantially safer than it used to be in part because of automation, even though you can point to the periodic aviation accident where what happens is the, you know, the, the, the automation screwed up and the humans didn't know what to do because they really no longer knew how to fly a plane that wasn't being flown partly by the automation. So this is a very typical problem in automation. I think we go into it with our eyes open, uh, but it's a very tough, it's not only a matter of training people about it, but how do you stimulate them to be you know, awake and alert and say, huh, does that make any sense? No, that really doesn't make any sense. I better, I better jump in. I have a big example of that in, in The Digital Doctor where part of the problem that led to a 40-fold overdose that we gave a kid at my hospital was the, it was clear that the technology was doing the wrong thing. And yet every human in the loop ignored the alerts because they get so many of them that they've learned to ignore them. And the final common pathway of a nurse who could have caught this saw a dose for a 40-fold overdose, which was, in, in retrospect, she knew is an absolutely absurd dose. And she said, but the barcode is telling me it's correct, so it must be correct. It's smarter than I am. It's a very, very hard problem in technology of any kind, and I think it's going to get harder. In some ways, paradoxically, as the AI gets better, people will trust it more, turn their brains off more, become less good at the old skills they used to have. And it may be that that is sort of net okay because the thing is still safer than it was when humans were trying to do it alone. You know, we're not that great. I mean, we forget things. We, you know, we didn't sleep well last night. We had an argument with our kids. All of that has to be factored in as you sort of compare the AI-based care with human-only care. And I suspect that a partnership is going to be better than either one alone. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about misinformation a little bit, uh, I, I've been aware over the past year or two, for the first 
time in a long time, a small but definite increase in the number of mums who haven't wanted to get their babies vaccinated. And I'm sure that's on the back of COVID vaccine misinformation. There's definitely harmful sources of information out there. So do you see this as having a wider effect on, on maybe how people doubt more of what their doctor tells them? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that the misinformation problem in healthcare is part of just a broader, you know, we see as a, as a national trend in the U.S., uh, because of Trump, but but uh, because but it's really an international problem, and it's drawn from the fact that people now can choose their their own adventure when they decide what portal to get their information from, uh, and those sources of information are are unfiltered and often quite biased to give them misinformation because there's a business there. There's certainly enough people that want information that is different than what I would perceive as the truth that they that that's where they look for their information. So there's that there's a general questioning of expertise. And I think what COVID proved is that it works that the mRNA vaccines are miraculously effective and unbelievably safe. You know, and we faced a global pandemic, which in the US killed over a million people. So you would think that, you know, we would all come together and everybody would, you know, get the vaccines and be excited about this. And yet the purveyors of misinformation saw an opportunity. It's so complex, you know, when you try to think about explaining that the risk of COVID is many times higher than the very tiny risks from the vaccines, but you can certainly find cases of people who've had side effects from vaccines. You can certainly find cases tens of thousands of cases of people who got a vaccine and had a heart attack a month or two later because they were destined to have a heart attack. The vaccine had nothing to do with it. But if you want to purvey misinformation to an unsuspecting public, you now have lots of opportunities to do it. And I think what we're seeing is the migration of misinformation. I can't think of any good reason that the people who, for whatever reason, mostly economic, uh, maybe it gives them joy for some reason, I don't understand it, found that there was pleasure and profit in purveying misinformation about COVID vaccines. Why they wouldn't do the same about measles vaccines, there's no good reason not to, and the public will be similarly vulnerable, and why they wouldn't move on and do the same thing with treatment of high blood pressure or treatment of atrial fibrillation or you name it. I don't see any bright dividing line between vaccines and the rest of medicine. And so I worry a lot about it. I think it's going to influence all of medicine because the tools for misinformation are very powerful and the skepticism that people have about credentialed professionals and about expertise is incredibly high, which is you know, incredibly upsetting for those of us that spent 10 or 15 years of our lives trying to become experts in a given field. But I, I guess your presence on Twitter or, or X, as we must call it, whether that's uh, <laughs> rebranding or debranding, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But, but it's obviously a great attempt to counteract that misinformation with, with better quality and, and true information. I, I've got a colleague called Dr. Chris Weatherburn who recommended your book in the first place. And he was looking, at, I think, enviously at your 250,000 social media followers, I think. I think he was hoping you could give him some tips, you know, on getting to that level. But, uh, <laughs> Well, I think the main tip was to start very early in a global pandemic, have a perch as chair of a major department in a well-known place and put out information that people found useful and interesting. And the reason I say that, and, and so it's not a tip that's particularly useful to someone now, you know, I had about 15,000 Twitter followers when the pandemic started 
and I have 275,000 now, I did not become any more interesting in the last three years, I can guarantee you, <laughs> or any more profound. So really it was a pandemic effect. It was people were desperate for information. And I'm you know, very proud of that. I, it wasn't like I was putting stuff out to combat misinformation because in the beginning there wasn't that much. It was that I was just putting stuff out because I thought there's gonna be an insatiable need for people to understand what's going on here. It's very confusing. And if you've never thought about how a virus works or a vaccine works or clinical reasoning or probabilistic thinking or Bayesian reasoning, you know, this is going to be wildly confusing and people will be looking for trusted sources who can decipher this and give it to them in plain in plain English. And I actually thought as a generalist, I'm not an infectious disease expert. I'm not a pandemic expert. I'm a general internist uh, who's you know pretty good at the big picture. I thought, you know, there's going to be a ton of very detailed scientific information that's probably going to be confusing to people. And so the role of being a synthesizer and an integrator, I thought would be important. And it turned out to be, it turned out people seemed to value that. I didn't really think about combating misinformation until a few months later when it was clear there were other people doing the same thing, but doing it in a very, very different way and highlighting information that I thought was wrong. And then I think the moral imperative to keep doing it, you know, there was a lot of people who said, Twitter is such a cesspool, you should leave. And I felt like, you know, that that gives the other side a victory. And so even though, you know, I try not to read the comments or when I read them, they, you know, I've got pretty thick skin. Uh, there's a lot of silliness there, but it felt like it was an important thing to do for the, you know, same reasons that as a physician, what I do every day is feels also important and there's an imperative to keep doing it. Oh, yeah, no, it's it, please keep doing it. Uh, your resources and the grand round videos. And th there's a load of really great resources that you've you've put out. It, they've been great. In, in, in our users group in, in Snug, we're, we're all about looking for the benefits of IT and embracing new systems and, and getting trained up to use them well. We also have this interest in Scotland in, in realistic medicine, which I guess is about sometimes agreeing with patients when not to use treatments, you know, because it's maybe the best thing not to do. And I wonder if there's maybe a bit of a parallel idea in realistic use of technology, um, sometimes not using it. It's an interesting idea. You know, I, I, I have been impressed by, uh, uh, in the UK generally, and I think Scotland particularly, but, but I saw it in England as well. Uh, there is a much deeper appreciation on the limits of the resources that we have and the communality of it, that, that if we spend all of our money on X, we can't spend it on Y. Um, a very smart, um, Ethicist once wrote, humans have the aspirations of deities, though never the resources. I think that the fact that you're dealing with communal dollars, with tax dollars to fund your health system, sort of forces conversations about realism. I remember the first time I came over to the UK as a physician and, and I met a colleague who spent some time in the States. And he said, I said, what struck you the most? He says, you people don't know how to say no to anything. And I said, you know, bingo, you, you figured us out. You know, we have this feeling that, uh, and, and we have a system that really doesn't have bounds around it. And so, you know, there's nothing like nice. There's nothing that creates a rational conversation about rationing. Uh, and so a new drug that comes out that costs $200,000 and extends life for a month, or a new Alzheimer's therapy that maybe slows it down by six months at a cost of $100,000 a year, we have no mechanism in the U.S. to say anything other than yes to that. And what we then don't understand is the money has to come from somewhere. 
And so we have a huge number of homeless people on the streets and the public schools are, are not great and the infrastructure is deteriorating. I think the UK, you're in better position, at least think rationally about those, those trade-offs. Uh, you know, technology is an interesting thing because I don't see it the same way I see a brand new, you know, uh, immunotherapy for cancer. I think there's good technology, there's bad technology. And I think there's every possibility that the implementation of good technology will be a win-win for everyone, as I think it has been in other parts of our lives. I mean, as much as it's sad that bookstores have gone away, you know, don't take away my Amazon. It's incredibly convenient. It does what we want it to do and fills a really important need better than what it replaced. And that's why it has won the game. And so I think that, and I can't see a good reason why the thoughtful, uh, implementation of technology, paying attention to the humanness of medicine and the importance of the physician-patient interaction in many circumstances can't lead us to a place where it delivers better, safer, less expensive, more accessible care, but we got to get it right. And uh, so I don't see it as, as you know, it's sort of the same way I think of rationing decisions in, in some of the things we have in, in medicine. It really is we just have to get it right. There are a lot of opportunities to screw it up and a lot of opportunities for mischief. But I think if we get it right, it will be net good for everyone, I think, including including clinicians. Yeah. I, I just wonder if you have any closing top tips for Scottish GPs about how we can continue to get the best out of our IT before we finish. Oh, I wish I, I wish I did. I have to say I was impressed. You know, I, I lived over in England. I spent I came up to Scotland once or twice, but uh, at least in England, I was impressed that the GP technology world was far ahead of, of the, how, the technologies I saw in, in the trusts, uh, in part because, you know, GPs had started on this 20 years earlier and that they had built some of their own systems that felt like they were built for the purposes that they used them. So I thought there was a real head start. I do think that the future here is going to be one where patient expectations, as you say, are increasingly going to be set by their experience with Amazon and their experience with Netflix and their experience with, you know, how they make plane reservations. And I think we're going to have to deliver on that and try to really think of what are the interactions with the health system that can be done virtually. Uh, and what are the times that they really don't need to see a doctor? They, you know, this thing can be managed effectively by a patient interacting with the technology with a reasonable triage system. So the system sort of knows that this is a problem that should not be managed by a technology. You actually need to see your doctor. I, that doesn't sound that hard to me. I know it will be because everything in tech meets healthcare is harder than it looks, but I think that would be my goal. My goal would be to sort of try to understand what is it that uniquely can be done in the office by the doctor and what can be done by a combination of technology and other members of the team. You know, one of the other things that technology can do is it can leverage and elevate the ability of a nurse to provide kinds or even, you know, a non-clinician person to deliver certain kinds of care that we used to say only a doctor can do that. I think we have to be open to that and, you know, in some ways made easier by the crisis. It's harder if, you know, you have tons of GP capacity and everybody's got lots of open slots, but the crisis in capacity <clears throat> means that I think we have to do this and there'll be plenty of enough work for all of us to do uh, in terms of the remaining interpersonal interactions. Well, it's been a really fascinating discussion and uh, it's been very kind of you to join us today. I want to thank you. Thank you, Andrew. It's a great pleasure and hope to see you in person the next time I'm over there.
Well, what a really thought-provoking conversation and a delight to speak to Bob, who is so interesting and has made me think differently about quite a few things, including how rapidly AI might really start to impact us as healthcare providers, and as far as the present goes, how we should be focusing on the need to triage requests for appointments better. We may prefer face-to-face appointments as doctors, but we also need to factor in efficiency and to try and make sure we are seeing the right people. I think we can probably all get better at triaging requests for care, and we really do have to think about how online care can help meet patient demand in the future. How far away is the time when we feel that our IT is really helping us rather than causing us to feel even busier? I'd love to hear some feedback. You can email me at andrew.mcelhinney2 at nhs.scot or contact Snug via alex.defranco at phs.scot. There's also many podcasts and YouTube videos featuring Bob to check out as well. So I'll put some links to those in the podcast notes. Look forward to the next episode and I hope you'll keep listening. Bye.